and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Ben Allen, who's a GP partner in Sheffield. Over the past few years, Ben and his practice have been on a bit of a journey to make their practice a better place to work. Ben found that by focusing on staff and improving the organisational culture within the practice, they've seen huge improvements across the board. Aside from having a much happier workforce than they did at the start of this process with improved morale and staff retention, the practice has also seen patient satisfaction scores rising at a time when nationally they are falling. In this conversation, Ben tells me how they managed to achieve all of this and has advice for any GPs or practice managers thinking of embarking on a similar journey. So I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast now by Dr. Ben Allen, who's a GP partner at Burley Health Centre in Sheffield. One of his main interests is improving organisations through building high-performing teams with high morale, confidence and autonomy. He also aims to empower patients to understand their health and their health system. Ben has come on the podcast today because over the past few years, his practice has been on a bit of a journey transforming how they work and their culture. And they've had some really impressive results, which I think are worth sharing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I mentioned there that you've really transformed the way your practice works and the result of all of this has been a a happier workforce and happier patients. Um, We know that general practice is really struggling with a workforce and a workload crisis, but despite this, your practice is really bucking a lot of the trends and you've seen increased levels of patient satisfaction as well as improved continuity and access because of all the work you've done. So that's why I was keen to get you on the podcast to talk about what you've done and whether there's things other people can learn. So I guess the first question is, what was the start? starting point for all of this? Why did you decide to look at what you were doing and think about doing things differently? So I started in a very busy practice where it was hard for the staff. It was definitely hard for the patients. There was a sense in which this is just inevitable. This is just what this is NHS. You know, this is a rundown primary care. It's not the investment. You just have to accept that this is the level of service that we're offering. And I could see unreleased potential in our staff and in our organization. So I sensed that there was a, a better version of doing general practice was, was, was possible. I didn't know how to get there at the time, but I didn't accept that this is what it needs to be like. I think being a partner made a difference. I really felt a sense of ownership. This is my organization. I'm employing these people. And actually, one of the really key things was actually the staff. I think it's always been very important to me People often criticize me for not talking about patients enough and talking about staff a lot. But my conviction is that the staff are there because they care about patients. They want to do the best for patients. That's why they're in the job. And I'm certain for my practice, that's the case. So my job is to enable them to do their job. So if I look after staff and help them to thrive, then the patient care will happen. And I felt that I was unhappy with the experience of what it's like for the staff coming to work. I don't feel happy to be running an organization where the people at the organization are are unhappy and don't like coming to work. That's the problem I want to try and solve. And then obviously that had repercussions to patients. And that is also not acceptable because that's what we're there for. So how big a practice are you? How many patients have you got and how many staff have you got? We're up to 9,000 patients and I think we've got about 25 staff. Once you've decided to do something, where do you start? Like you say, there's so many issues and challenges in general practice. And, you know, there is a lot about how can we make this better without any more money, without any more resources. My memory of where I started was to try and do instinctively look at, you know, what are some of the systems that need changing? What are some of the arguments that are happening? Just coming into work and trying to solve those problems. My memory was that wasn't particularly fruitful. 
And what I decided was to spend some time reading. So I then got books. The, the theme in terms of the books is probably organizational psychology. So it was people like Brené Brown, Simon Sinek, and Patrick Lencioni is probably the biggest influence Amy Edmonton and uh, Jim Collins. And these were books about organizational health. How do you create a team that functions well, that works well together, has psychological safety, it's purpose-driven, and creating the culture, the environment for people to thrive. And then all the things that people want to see, like staff retention, morale, continuity, access, that happens as a result, as an overflow, as an outflow of doing the inner work of the culture. And I couldn't have come up with that. So uh, it was through reading, it was through realizing that all these principles were overlapping in these books and then coming up with a bit of a game plan about, okay, where do we start? And, you know, for the first year or two, there probably wasn't a huge amount to actually discernible difference for patients. But five years down the line, our stats compared to national are incredible. You're always kind of talking about coming it from almost like a helicopter view and changing it in a bigger sense to then tackle those individual problems. So once you decide that you need to change your culture or approach it and get everyone happier and more engaged and turn them into some high performing team, how do you do that? Where do you start on that? So I read a lot of these books and I'd read one book and it would include a bunch of principles. I'd read another one and it would include one of those principles and another one. And they just thought, how does this all fit together? And the only way I could do it was in the end was to write this, was write notes on them, write down the themes, build a framework. And I've got this kind of framework that I feel like everything that I've read seems to fit into. It's around team dynamics, nurturing team potential, and being a purpose-driven organization and communication. So I'll start with the team dynamics. This is lifted from Patrick Lencioni. You've got this kind of pyramid and at the bottom is psychological safety or building vulnerability-based trust. So that's the ability for people to be able to come to work and feel there's just no barrier for them to being able to contribute their ideas, their thoughts, their concerns about the organization. So then you get all the data potentially from people about how they feel about work and about the challenges and people feel safe. And that's really important. And then once you've got that and there's this level of safety, then then you're able to have debate and discussions very freely. It becomes not so much about um, getting your idea, but getting the best idea. And if you there in a room where you can see the debate, you can feel like you were really heard, like people cared about what you had to say. And you can see that the evidence and the opinions are stacking up in a direction that's not the one that you would have preferred. Being part of that process, you can live with what the decision that gets made. And I think you get a better decision made but if it's not your decision you can live with that better from that you then get commitment to whatever the decision is made often in organizations people don't speak up people don't contribute to the decision and then they end up undermining it later because they think it's a stupid decision whereas if that process is something that you've been a part of you're more likely to be able to commit to that decision and then you're more likely to be able to then have accountability which is another challenge as well so that's around the kind of team dynamics and i think all of the change things that we've gone through, those principles have been really foundational. So another one is around finding and nurturing team potential. So you've got the recruitment and then you've got what do you do with the people who you've got at your organization. So the recruitment, I think, is probably one of the most important principles. I don't think you can spend too long on recruitment. If you imagine someone who is really good at a particular job versus someone who's really not well suited to that particular job and the difference that person makes in terms of just to say time or finances for that practice uh, and morale uh, in it every week, times that by how long they're at the organization, 
you couldn't spend that long on recruitment. <laughs> so it's always really important to do that really thoughtfully. And it's very much around finding the right person in terms of who they are as a person. So what they care about, what their values are, what their strengths are, what they want to see happen in their life and through them. That stuff you can't really change. And you don't have good or bad. You just have people who are aligned with your organization and who are not. You know, those specific skills, you know, some, some medical skills need to be taught at medical school and things. But actually, lots of the skills like typing or IT or dictation, you know, there's things that people can pick up. But, you know, the, the other stuff is much harder to, um, to nurture over time. So that's the kind of recruitment. And then you've got how do you bring out the best in staff, basically? And it's not enough just to want that because I think our organization really did care about people. But it's about having the mechanisms that mean that that care actually becomes experienced and is outlived. And so I think that one of the keys there is around having team leaders who are not just the most clinically senior or they've been around the longest. They're the people who are the most admired, who are humble, who really care about people, who want to bring out the best in people. They're the people who are going to likely to be able to help nurture a team. And so it's finding those people and they won't think of themselves as leaders necessarily. You need to spot that potential. And then their job is then to know their team personally, what their team is interested in, what they care about, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. And their conversations are then happening on a daily, weekly basis, not just an appraisal once a year. But then also that level of intimacy means that you can then also have the more difficult conversations around what things people are not performing at. So then the other bit is around purpose-driven, having a purpose-driven organization. So we've all got our own reasons to come to work. And you could have it where people are trying to help a particular group of patients. Some people just really want to get off on time because they've got their family commitments. Some people really want to earn money and they want a pay rise. Some people want to be more clinically senior. So we've all got our own agendas. And you know that's inescapable because we're all different, aren't we? But if you've got a really well-articulated, spoken about reason for being there as a team, then that can start to become the more important purpose, the more important reason for being at work. And then actually, when people have got a purpose for being at work that is puts them in conflict with other people, those things start to melt away a little bit when there's something more, there's bigger that the whole team is driving at that they have a role in. So that's about just having conversations about what we're here for, what matters to you, what do you want to see happen at this organization? Are we doing that? What are the values? What are the kind of behaviors? What do you want this organization to look like? And do we look like that? And if not, how do we get there? And then potentially having particular goals or things that we want to achieve as an organization and having clarity around what people's roles are in that as well. So that's around being purpose-driven. And then the other is just around communication because it just comes up again and again, and you can't not sort out communication and have it with a thriving organization. And so I think the three bits to that are patience and leaders and the team. And I think that there's important communication that happens between all three of those. So some of that's going to be around having the right technology to communicate sometimes, you know, either WhatsApps or or webinars. From leaders to the team, it's about it's about knowing what things are going on, what changes are happening and make sure they're being communicated. I think primarily by email or, or written down because when you have the team together, that's really precious time to debate and and share things with each other, not just having a lot of notices read out from the front. But I think it's really important that we're communicating with our patients and listening back to patients about the service that we are delivering. What is it that matters to them? What do they care about? And then explaining the position that we're in 
with the team that we've got, with the funding that we've got, why we're working the way we're working and tweaking the ways that we're working to make it good for patients, but also explaining the limitations of the service. And I think that makes a very big difference than how people, the relationship that they have with the practice and the way that then patients come into the practice when they feel like they're listened to and understood and we're shaping the organization as best we can, then I think that creates a very different relationship. Yeah, communication is really key. They're the kind of four main areas. And I think if you work on those kind of cultural, deep-rooted issues, then the stuff that everybody wants to see around the patient experience and continuity and morale and staff turnover, all that stuff gets sorted out in the process of dealing with some of the cultural things. So when you started doing all of this, were all of your partners on board as well? Or was it something you had to really convince them to get behind? I think that was a bit of a process. So I was new in, to their credit, they gave me a lot of trust to be able. So that's one of the things that in our, in our practice, it was established well before I came, was that we are an encouraging practice that, that encourages people, if they've got an idea, we want to give them the autonomy to be able to run with it. So even without being convinced, there is a, a natural openness to allowing people to be able to, to make changes and, and, and do things. So that was that was one thing. The, the degree of work that was required for me to understand all these concepts, there's no way I could have argued to be paid for that time. I mean, uh, who knows how many hours or days I spent on that. That was my weekends and evenings because I love it and I enjoy it. Um, and I think once they could see that some of the things that they, they didn't understand why I was making particular suggestions and changes that I was, but once they could start to see the impact of that. So a really, a really good example was um, recruitment around reception, but particularly the manager. I spent a lot longer on recruitment on a manager than they would have done and that they were comfortable on. But now we've got such an incredible manager and what a difference it makes. I think that they're seeing that the things I'm doing and the results that it leads to leads to more trust and more ability to allow me to make decisions. So obviously you're talking about changing the culture. How do you get staff on board with that? You said communication is really key. How do you engage with staff and, and say, right, we're going to do things differently now? I think it started right back with that purpose of, I want to create a place where patients get fantastic care, the best care that they could get with the resources that we've got. And I want to help create a team environment where people enjoy coming to work, where they thrive. They are their best selves. They're reaching their potential. And obviously the two uh, overlap enormously. And so engagement with staff just is an absolutely inevitable part of both of those things. For people to really thrive in work, I think they need to be feel a part of it. And so they need to feel um, listened to. They need to be in an environment where they're able to, to speak freely their ideas and thoughts and concerns and challenges are what's shaped everything that's unfolded. This is not about me coming up with a lot of ideas. This is really about me releasing their ideas. By absolute definition, this has been their project, really. And, and my job's been to release that. I get the impression that you see the reception team as really poor. I mean, they are basically the front of the practice, aren't they? How have you gone about making sure you've got a really strong reception team? I think one of the most important things about building a, a team is is around who, who leads that team. And I think if you've got someone who is really gifted with people, who cares about people and can invest in people and nurture them and is respected. So one of the crucial things has been our reception team leader. 
So that's one thing. And then the other was around recruitment. We really focused on finding the right person. Who are they as people? What are their character and their personality? This is from Patrick Lencioni, but something that makes a really great team player are people who are hungry, so kind of passionate, motivated, humble, so having humility and being able to allow other people's decisions to, to go or allowing not, not getting your own way all the time and emotionally intelligent. So there are three things that are really important for a team player, but then specifically for reception, being empathetic is so important. Being good on the phone, actually. So we did a lot of phone interviews initially, like loads. We didn't screen people out from their um, application. We did like 35 phone interviews, I think, for two receptionists uh, and then eight face-to-face. But yeah, we're looking for empathy, being able to, I mean, this is, this is the words of our reception team leader, is being able to walk in other people's shoes to be able to really see from their perspective. Obviously, I said you're bucking the trend in terms of patient satisfaction. What kind of results have you seen since you started taking this approach? So initially, the results that I was noticing were things around the team dynamics. So even something as simple as like the Christmas night out, you might only get two thirds of the people going along, whereas now it's I think everybody, apart from someone who's abroad. And the things that people say to me, I think, have really helped me to see that people think it's a very, very different place. I wrote up some of the work that we've been doing and I shared it with a few of our staff. And there's two quotes here that came back. And these, I think, are the key results. (laughs) Um, So one person said, I actually feel so lucky to work with amazing people that without seeing it in themselves have reached somewhere they never thought they would. It's so good. And I hope you're able to share this with other practices. I feel we've absolutely nailed it and I can't wait to see where we go. And another person said, I hope everyone has the same feeling I have reading that. I feel so proud to work for such a lovely surgery. We have old staff wanting to come back. That's the progress we've made. It's a privilege to work for Burley. I couldn't say that three years ago. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, they were the initial results. Then we've got this patient satisfaction survey. Comes out every year. And we weren't aiming to get great results for that. We've not been aiming to get great CQC or anything. The point was just to create a great place to work and create care for patients. But it seems that the culture that we've established, the way that we then have then improved access and continuity, and then patients obviously get all these these questionnaires get sent out every year um, externally. And the results have started to come back that people's experience of the care they're getting is improving every year, as opposed to the national picture, which for very understandable reasons is getting worse every year. When you say you've improved continuity and access, how did you actually do that? Is that just because the staff have come up with ideas to do things better or just because everybody knows their function in the team and what they're supposed to be doing? Or have you actually changed the way the practice does things as well as making everybody happier? This is the really brutally hard question because there's something about and I don't even know how you can measure this really is if you've got an organization that is working well it's functioning it's doing what it wants to do then the right things happen so you end up working more efficiently you end up sharing the work around more efficiently there's less conflict so you get on better so you resolve problems you make better decisions so we've made decisions around the tech so we're using ask my gp now as a as an online tool but that's only part of the story but that means that when the the cases come in this is one of the key things is normally when a case comes in often a receptionist allocates it to a particular person and it's quite hard to kind of reverse that often they might even be in a they might 
might even be given a, a face-to-face appointment with that person. That decision is made now for who that person is going to see. Whereas as my GP functions as holding space of the clinical case with good information from the patient or good information that the receptionist written down, that case gets allocated to somebody, but it can be reallocated if that patient's too complex for a particular person or if that person discovers that someone else knows that patient better and clinically it's okay for them to wait, then that can be reallocated. Hundreds of things like that happen every day that just mean that common sense things happen more often. And if you've got a chaotic environment where work is just being scattered around, you get people seeing people are too complex for them, they need to be rebooked in. You're getting someone who's seeing, bouncing around lots of different clinicians who don't know them. So it's just that thing of having a team that is just functioning and healthy and it just produces hundreds of slightly better decisions. I think that's how we ended up with the data coming through. There's often people say, well, it's just, it's just too difficult. There's too much demand out there. We're never going to be able to meet it. We've just got, it doesn't matter if I work 24 hours a day, I'm never going to see all the patients that we need to see. And it's quite hard when people get into that sort of mindset that, that general practice is just a really difficult place to work. You know, how do you get out of that to actually make the change to free up all this innovation that you seem to have done? So I think that... Something that that is very common and is common at the NHS England is people are looking at what I call the fruit, the results. And so you're just like, how do I produce those results? And we've not been looking at the results. The results happened. So you think about in kind of in terms of like uh, what it'd be like in a garden. Before you make a garden, you invest in the soil. You get really good quality soil. And you think really carefully about what plants you get, high quality plants that are going to work in the particular spot where they're in and they're disease resistant. And that stuff is very hidden. It's not very sexy or there's nothing to show for it. But that is the foundation. Recruitment is a lot like finding good plants, isn't it? Um, Not much to show for it straight away, especially if they're from outside the NHS and they don't know how things function. But you do that. And then if you nurture that with care, over time, the fruit just starts getting produced. Let me give you a, a story about something that is the, one of the most important bits of work we ever did, okay? We've made it so the phones go over to a, an external provider for an hour during lunchtime. This is my manager's idea, not mine. Everyone brought in three objects that were meaningful to them, and we sat around in a circle. You need to have some level of psychological safety to do this, but it was definitely a stretch. It's the kind of thing you'd often do in smaller groups, but we did it as a full group. People brought in three objects that were meaningful to them, and we went around sharing these things with each other and now if you just had to sit down and, and just say three things that are meaningful to you that would be quite a lot harder it feel but to be able to have these objects to point at that makes it a little bit easier a little bit more accessible you've got these frames or these objects it was incredible people talked about successes they'd had achievements that they'd had their family people who died who mattered to them their hobbies there was laughter there was tears it was beautiful it was my favorite meeting i've ever been in in the process People were vulnerable and felt that it's okay to be vulnerable. They felt safe. They felt like people care about what I care about. They're interested in me. You start to learn about what matters to them. You learn about their family. You learn about what motivates them. Some people are all about their achievements and other people are all about their family. You learn such rich things about people. Now, most people just have thought well, that was just a really nice break. It was just a really nice experience. But that develops the psychological safety and the trust and the morale so that the following day when something goes wrong or kicks off, that team deals with that problem in a whole different way. So they're the kind of results 
that a team that's overwhelmed with access need to actually be doing before they're going to have any hope of being able to achieve the kind of results that patients in NHS England are looking for. But people don't think, oh, we're really struggling. Let's have a conversation about what matters to us at home. But I think that that is what's needed. <laughs> Obviously, this is a, you know, it is a massive culture change and that requires a lot of drive, I would imagine, from you on your part, particularly in the very early stages. I mean, it sounds like what happens is that once you get a certain way down the road, then it, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling thing that's got its own head of steam and everybody's pushing it forward. But to begin with, it must require an awful lot of energy and drive from you to, to kind of get this moving. Are there any advice you would give to anyone else who's thinking about doing this? And, and you know, how... Did you kind of sustain yourself in those early days while you were pushing it forward? I can only answer this from my perspective, so this may not be what other people need to hear. This is a role that some people need to have in their organisation, some people don't. So it's one of the things It's just realising, you know, if you come alive when you're hearing what I'm talking about, then you are probably one of those people. And I think finding books and podcasts that help you to help to give you more of a grasp of some of these concepts. I think connecting with with other people who are like-minded, who you can share your challenges with and get a perspective, finding your tribe. So you're not on your own because I was on my own at the time. Uh, I think it would be easier if you had like-minded people who you could go on a journey with. I think kind of getting permission for, or, or getting some level of permission from some of the decision makers, some, if you're if you're not one of the um, the leaders, um, trying to explain what you're doing. But most people either are not particularly interested or don't get it. And I think some of it's enough just to not be told no. So to say this is my plan. Have you got a problem with me doing this? Or, or I'm going to start leading some of these meetings. Please just tell me if you think if you've got a problem with anything I'm doing or saying and kind of like presuming it's okay being curious about things that don't have to be done the same way you know asking why why do we do it this way is really important and don't assume that people know what what they're doing i think lots of people are making up as they go along i think that's the reality in fact i sometimes wonder if it's the best way to be doing it to be honest <laughs> um but i think i think that a lot of people are not as clear on how to run an organization as it might appear. And I think the other thing is that this some of this stuff is so basic. So one of the things that Patrick Lencioni says is a book called The Advantage that's just a lot of his books are stories actually, so they're really easy to read. Five Dysfunctions of a Team is just lovely to read. The Advantage has actually got more of the theory in. But he makes the point this stuff is really obvious and basic. It's just that almost no one's actually doing it. So don't be too put off by the fact that, oh yeah, we've heard all this before, but actually we've heard it before, but people aren't actually doing it. And it's actually carving out, like just like listening to staff and doing what they're doing, what they ask. Everyone knows that's how you run an organization, but actually, if you actually sit down, so here's an example of how you might do this is if you have a challenge or a question, you get people into small groups. So they're sharing their ideas back and you stick it on the board. You know, it might be the challenges. You then might get everyone to go back into small groups, talk about some of the solutions. They come back and you share all the solutions. And you could even then have a show of hands and say, you know, let's go down this list. Stick your hand up if you think any of these are a good idea. You go down them, you find out which is the thing that the solution that most people want, and then just do it. And then people think like, wow, they actually care. They actually listened. And you've got a really good solution probably if the people who are at the organization, they're, they're, they're seeing what's going on all the time. They're going to have the best solutions between them. Did you find you had to carve out like specific times to kind of have these staff meetings? Was that something you sort of planned in to your, say, working week in the practice? You set aside these times to, 
to have these conversations with people. Yeah. So one of the key things I think was trying to get that phone cover in the middle of the middle of the day, which we didn't previously have. Right. But even before that, we still managed to we still managed to do it. We might plan in the diary. But to be honest, I'm not even sure that people even notice what's in the diary. It's more just the beginning of the day. You say, look at half past twelve. We're going to meet in this room for forty five minutes. I might even say, oh, we're going to talk about this. So please, you know, have a think about this question before you come. Most people will come. You try and keep it to time. It's that whole thing about what matters and most in every organization it seems that direct patient care always seems to trump everything else well if it always trumps everything else you've got organizational chaos which is not good for patients so you really have to say okay i know this is a busy day and i'm exhausted if two or three really sick complex patients came in i would find a way to see them so i'm going to find a way to make sure this meeting happens (laughs) And it's really putting that priority on getting people together to build morale and to share problems and solutions together. What's interesting about this, there's always been this sort of conversation for years and years and years that, you know, GP training doesn't equip people with the skills to run a practice, you know, the business side of skills. But obviously, lots of people don't have these leadership skills and understanding. Do you think there should be more opportunities for GPs to learn about some of this stuff that you've done? And and what do you think the best way for that to happen is? I think it'd be good to have some introduction to this at probably medical school or certainly in GP training. But I go back to a point I said earlier. I think this is a, this is a niche role. Uh, I think that leadership or, or understanding culture and, and organisational development is only for some people. And so I think I think it's just important that I am the I'm the least clinically senior at my at my of all my partners. But some of them are really gifted at the clinical medicine. Some of them are really gifted at the teaching. I'm the youngest, but I'm the one who's interested in leadership and organizational development. So they've allowed me to have that role. So some people are really wired for this. I think it's about creating an opportunity for those people to hear that there's a that there is a way of leading practices and organizations that make a difference and allowing them access and time to be able to um, spend time learning about it and wrestling with these challenges. I think my hunch is the best way to do it would probably be something that was funded by NHS England time-wise, but is is done locally. I think having local improvement communities or leadership communities where where like-minded people who think about this stuff can can come together and you can have you know teaching and experts but a lot of it's going to be around people bringing their challenges and wrestling with it together and inspiring each other and sharing ideas and going back to their own practice and being able to implement them you've talked a lot about all of this on on social media and and you've got a blog as well i mean so it seems like you're really keen to share this i mean what are you planning on doing anything more to to make people more aware of what you've been doing what i'm really passionate about is about general practice being um reaching its full potential you know um and I think the two ways I see that happening is both government and people at NHS England making decisions that support and enable general practice to be the best version of itself. So I'm thinking very broadly around how do you help influence the national teams to make good decisions and how do you bring expertise in for them? Because it's very complicated, important decisions that are being made, but also how do I support people to, to connect and that might be through podcasts or, or webinars. I mean, I think this is a great example of how we can help make change happen because 
so much of the work that we do and the way that it is affected by the way that we think about things and being challenged and sharing ideas is one of the ways that that can happen. My hope is rooted in the fact that there's unreleased potential in our individuals and in our teams. And as long as you can look around and see that the, this team is not working as well as it could and this person is not working well, well as it could, that's where your hope can be in. Because that's something I think that we can unlock very simply. And that doesn't need extra money or extra people. And if you get to the point where actually your team is functioning as well as it can and it's still not coping with demand, there's something very different about how that feels when you go to work and you can tell that everything is working as well as it possibly could. There's a real sense of peace and satisfaction that you can get from that. That's all you can do. That's a really good place to leave things. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. It's been really great talking to you. And I'm sure people listening to this are going to find what you've done at your practice absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Ben for taking the time to talk with me. During that conversation, Ben mentioned several leadership and organisational change books that he found particularly helpful during this process. He's kindly shared a list of some of his favourites with me, which we've included in the notes for this episode. I'll be back next week with Nick for our regular news review, so please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can read all the latest news affecting general practice and access a wealth of other resources on our website, gponline.com.